0: You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at malvanechurchcom sermons. James 4, James 4 verse 6 and 7, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble submit therefore to god quotation of psalm 138 it's also quoted in the book of first peter we'll open from james and we'll end in first peter god is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble We think about in this life, all those who have wrecked themselves by pride. So often a foolish pride, so often a pride that you talk about an air castle just built on nothing except the vaulted imaginations of the one who uh, possesses it. How much trouble pride causes in the world. As I was thinking about pride this last week, I thought about a children's show my kids used to watch. It's on the Disney Channel back in the early 2000s. It's called *The Proud Family*, and there's a lot of cleverness in the way that thing was constructed. Uh, one of my favorite things is uh, one of the, the protagonist protagonist's uh, friends uh, was named La Cienega Boulevardes, which is yeah. Her mother was named Sunset, and her her brother uh, uh, Feliz. Uh, anyway, uh, the, in *The Proud Family*, in that little cartoon. Uh, heard uh, the, the father figure, uh, Oscar Proud, uh, he was a proud and foolish fella. And his pride and his foolishness was often the driver of the mayhem that you would need in a Disney Channel kids show. But it was interesting, it, th- there were some things about that show that were a little more sophisticated than, than uh, you always find in kids shows. Not that there's not a lot of sophisticated humor hidden in, in well, sometimes very adult humor, as well, hidden in kids shows. Partly so the parents will watch it with the kids, and then they'll all buy the toys together. But um, the, 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 the pride of her father and its, its obvious uh, bad end over and over. And, of course, it's a little cartoon show. So within 22 minutes, the things of his pride always come to a crashingly bad end. But it's in every kind of storytelling. It's in every kind of literature that this is so. And they're not always neatly wrapped up in in a few uh, minutes or a few pages. You know, read some Dostoevsky or read some Tolstoy, and it takes a thousand pages uh, for the pride uh, to uh, work itself out and it come to its destruction. Or read Austen and the pride and the prejudice involved, and sometimes the sense and the sensibility of it uh, will be done in three or four hundred pages. Maybe not quite that, but in every kind of literature, from Shakespeare uh, to comic books and everything in between, and every kind of movie, and every kind of television show, and every kind of of storytelling we have. Uh, If if I told you that, uh, hey, I was listening to that new country song, it's about a man who wrecked himself with pride, you'll go, oh, you're going to have to narrow it down, right? Because how many of them are there? Uh, And how many, And it's you know, we have generations of that stuff in country music, but we have generations of that stuff in every kind of storytelling that there is. The tragic effects of... Pride uh, the way that uh, it should be overcome, it should be avoided uh, when somebody is is uh, guilty of that, the ways they get subverted or are left behind or overcome or, uh, or or they just become an anchor to drag with us through uh, you know pages and pages or uh, hour after hour the 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 tragic uh, effects of pride are well recognized and I think we can all uh, see them very well in these uh, things of literature and storytelling. And just as we can, uh, as the author saw them and wrote about them, and, and we read about these things or uh, consume the, the median story in whatever way, we can see it in everybody else around us, except for ourselves. And so I think this hatred of pride and the hatred of proud people and, and people who act in such a careless way regarding others. I think that is part of the internal sense of fairness that we have as being made in God's image. Just like we don't have to teach our kids, we don't have to teach them the objection, hey, that's not fair. They know that, right? They know fair inherently. Uh, now, they, they sometimes get a little twisted as to what's fair or not, but they but they, there's an internal fairness meter uh, in, in the heart of us all. And there's also, I think, a very well-developed uh, external uh, pride detector. The internal pride detector is not always as developed and works so well, but the external pride detector uh, is is you know, finely tuned and well-exercised, I think, uh, for us all. Uh, Job uh, was challenged this by God uh, way back in the book of Job, which is you know one of the earlier books uh, of, of Scripture, but Job is challenged with this, Job 40.11 Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. And so from the earliest pages of inspiration, and maybe only the books of Moses were written before Job and maybe not. We have this call from God to take down the proud. And isn't that the moment in the story? We mentioned all these storytellings. Isn't that the moment in the story, the moment in the song, the moment in the play, where everybody stands up and cheers, where the guy full of pride has his fall, where he's taken down a few notches? And so what we find is this is one of the ways, naturally, in which, again, being made in God's image, I think that we are reflecting the image of the one who made us, In ways we don't even recognize, and we don't know why. Why do we hate that so much? Uh, Why does it seem so natural to us? Uh, I don't think uh, it's a result of corruption. Now, our pride detector gets corrupted like everything in life, especially when it's pointed inward. Uh, But uh, the fact that God is opposed to the proud and will give grace to the humble is a lesson in Scripture over and over. What we find is that pride is one of the great contributing factors to sin, to the fall of man. From the very beginning, what do we find this? But this, Genesis 3 and verse 6, after the woman was led to by Satan and considered what he said, she acted at least partly based on pride. The woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eye, and it was desirable to make one wise. And she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And so you think about also our insatiable curiosity as people and the, uh, the uh, great common impulse of humanity, not completely universal but close, to always know more and more and to find things out. And why do we want to find things out? So we can do better with it or what? Well, what did Paul say about knowledge, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, 8 and verse 1? He said, knowledge puffs up, or knowledge makes arrogant. Well, we, we want to know because it appeals to our pride. And how much do we like that we know something somebody else doesn't? Or how many things are sold as secret knowledge or forbidden knowledge? How many things which are really worthless in themselves are peddled as if it's exclusive knowledge? Because these things appeal to our pride, and they always and so from the beginning, pride is the cause of men to sin and to fall. And it wasn't just in the beginning, but has ever been so continually that pride has been a major contributor. Not the only contributor, there are other lusts, there are other impulses. But pride has been a great one to continually cause people to sin. John said, first John 2, 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That echoes the threefold division of things that Eve saw. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. John generalizes those particulars and says lust of the flesh lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Those three will get you every time. And they do get us every time. And sometimes it seems like they get us every day. We lust for what we see. We lust for what we can feel. And we lust for what we can know in a way that appeals to our pride. And so it's not too strong a summary, I don't think, to say in the scriptures that pride equals sin. Uh, When is pride a good thing? When is it extolled? Uh, when do we find it spoken of positively? If you find me one, I'll, I'll put that down and add it to the list that I not currently have of nothing. So maybe there is one. Maybe I overlooked something. But generally we have this, like Luke 1, 51. And this really echoes what God said to Job. It's uh, John the Baptist's father talking about the great works of God. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those uh, who are proud In the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered those who are proud. So God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. So let's think about that aspect. Let's think about humility as necessary for salvation. The necessity of humility in salvation. We first have, and maybe most famously have, the shocking emphasis that Jesus puts on it when he's dealing with a bunch of Pharisees. And it's interesting, we have this description of the events in Luke eighteen nine. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's a horrible pride right there. They trust in themselves. And as a result, they also, with this, view others with contempt and so an elevated view of self often goes with a uh, improper an improperly uh, terrible view contemptuous view disdaining view of other people i find it interesting that luke tells us this that luke if we think about the writing of the gospel of luke luke 30 years after the fact just about 30 years after the fact maybe not quite but right around that About 30 years after the fact, Luke, the traveling companion to Paul, we mentioned that in our Bible class this morning, he went with Paul to Jerusalem. And when Paul was in Jerusalem in Acts 21, Paul was arrested. And Paul ends up spending years in custody, a few weeks in Jerusalem, and then uh, down at the uh, Roman uh, sea uh, town and Roman uh, coastal fort town of uh, Caesarea. Uh, In Caesarea, uh, name for Caesar. Um, Paul was there in jail for a couple of years. Luke evidently that's when he went around and he interviewed people and he said I carefully investigated and I spoke to many witnesses and he wrote the things that become the gospel of Luke. And so 30 years after uh, he sets the scene for us as to exactly who it was Jesus was talking about. Now I can just imagine that he's, he's, uh, he's talking to people about what Jesus said and what Jesus did, uh, somebody would tell him, yeah, I remember that one time Jesus said to these folks. And we can almost, we can almost picture uh, these witnesses, these many years later, recalling you know, which, which Pharisees it was, which of these people it was, who Jesus was directly thinking about. The, these really arrogant and distasteful people. And so here, they trust themselves, and to view others with contempt. And so 30 years later, it was still remembered that this is how these people treated other folks. And you think about our reputation in our neighborhood, in our community, in our churches. How many people and their attitudes do you remember now 30 years on? Right? Now, (laughs) 30 years ago uh, is now closer than it used to be, it seems. 30 years ago now is uh, the early 90s, right? Right? Don't we all remember a number of people and their attitudes, both good and bad, from the early 90s? I used to think 30 years ago was, you know, those things before my time, and now it's no longer. Uh, But as I say, 30 years ago is not so long as it used to be. But yes, 30 years on, the way people act and the way people treat others is going to be remembered in the community. The community of believers, the community of the neighborhood, in those other uh, relationships in which we find ourselves. And so we think about uh, when people uh, recall us uh, as we recall others, what will it be that they recall of us some decades on? Well, Jesus at that point told this parable. He said two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I don't view this as two actual individuals. I review this as a representative story because it says parable. But in any case, he describes some of these people. He describes them uh, uh, by uh, their affiliation. He describes them by their attitude. He describes them by their words. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get. The Pharisees prided themselves in these very things. They may have said these very words or these very ideas in their prayers. And they certainly disdainfully looked at others like that tax collector. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Well, the Pharisees that say, okay, yeah, we see that every day. We see that detestable, lowly sinner. at least he admits it, I guess. But we see that detestable guy. And then we see the hero. We see that good Pharisee who does the good things and doesn't do the bad things. It's obvious, isn't it, to the Pharisee and those that trust in themselves, it's obvious up to this point who the hero of the story is, isn't it? Why, it's them. Don't you like it where you're the hero of the story? Now, I don't get to do it very often, but on occasion, now, there'll be some piece of cultural storytelling, a movie or, or a book or, or a song or something where the preacher is the good guy, right? Where the, the preacher is the kind one, the, the wise one, the merciful one, the helpful one. And you know what? I really like those stories. Now, of course, generally, how, to, how are preachers portrayed in the culture? If you're looking for the charlatan, there he is, right? He's usually the one wearing the title reverend. So I'm not such a big fan of those stories. And I don't think those are always fair. But is there a reason why they sometimes pick those guys to be the villain? Yeah, they do. There's a reason. Anyway, I have my, I have my collection of stories that I like where the preacher is is the good guy. Well, the Pharisees, I think up till now, they wouldn't find too much objectionable because, hey, he listed us by name, we're Pharisees. Uh, He gave us. He gave the Thanksgiving prayer like we do, and he talked about the good things that we do, and mentions the bad things we don't do, and that's good. We're the hero of the story, aren't we? But I tell you, see now you to see. This is where it's going to be a twist. But I tell you, I, I need you to recognize. Jesus said, "No, this man, this tax gatherer, this admitted sinner, the admitted sinner." goes to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Hold on. That's not how this story is supposed to go, is it? Not if you're a Pharisee. If you're a Pharisee, you you know you're righteous. You tell yourself that all the time. And you recognize, as Jesus calls out, your party affiliation. And you recognize the things you don't do, and you recognize the things you do do, and you go, that's the good guy. No, he's not. He's the bad guy because he is contemptuous of other people while he trusts in himself. This kind of prayer, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. That kind of contemptuous attitude. And so what we find is everybody in this story gets a chance to be humbled, and everybody in this story gets a chance to be exalted, you you everybody's going to get both and so you might as well do the humbling yourself so God can do the exalting Rather than exalting yourself so that God has to do the humbling But this man goes to his house justified God accepts What they detest and God rejects them in their proud self-assurance And up until the I tell you I don't think they would have seen it coming And so Jesus puts a shocking emphasis on on humility now we have known this story from our childhood right we've known it from youth and so maybe it's not so shocking to us as when originally told but we need to have this same attitude that we will go with humility on our part and let God do the exalting so humility in, in salvation uh, if we think about what we often and the way and form in which we often speak about salvation and by which I at this point I mean the plan of salvation think about the necessity in all parts of that, of humility. First off, in just hearing. In hearing the word, the humility necessary in that. But James says this, which we often just take as good life advice. Not that it's not good life advice, but that's not the context. Uh, James 1.19. This you know, my beloved brethren. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now read in isolation, and just read read that one sentence, as I say, that is often just taken as very good life advice. And aren't there people whose life would be better if they didn't talk so fast, if they listened more, and if they didn't get mad? And this is the point where, you know, it gets embarrassing to look back on some of the things I've said and done uh, and and, and responded to some things. Yeah, good life advice says listen more, talk less, and don't get mad. That's great life advice, but that is not the purpose of that teaching in this context. What it says going on is, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness. So here's uh, 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 a... trying to uh, live a righteous and sanctified life. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourself to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. So, what are we hearing? We're hearing the word. We're not just hearing it, we're hearing it to the point of doing it. How does that occur? Because in humility, you receive the word implanted to what? The salvation of your soul. So do you want to be saved? Have the word of God be planted in you. And then do that word of God. Not merely hearing and being deluded. Now, as soon as I think about the word of God and implanted, what text hopefully automatically comes to mind to some degree? The parable of the sower. Right, The sower goes out and he spreads the seed. And what happens with that seed? Some of that seed falls on the road. Does that seed ever get planted? Well, it's thrown out of the bag and it's thrown on the ground. But on the road, on the path, it never gets planted. It never gets in there. And what do you call seed on the road? Bird food, right? It's the, so, so, something's going to come eat that seed, right? Seed, seed. A lot, a lot of animals like to eat seed. And it's not going to stay there long on the road, and it's not going to get planted. But then there's some places where it gets planted, right? And it gets in the, in the rocky soil, or it gets in the soil where there's all these weeds and cares of life. And it gets a little bit of a plant in there, and it starts to root up a little bit. But what happens? In one, there's no root. In other, it's choked out. And so in those two conditions, intolerable soil but with too many other things, or in rocky soil where there's not enough uh, good to grasp into, then we're not going to have any real uh, fruit. We're not going to bring this to term. We're not going to get any harvest. Well, what about people then who hear the word and go, oh, preacher, good message. Hey, that Bible verse you read, oh, it hit me right in the heart. Oh, it's great. But then you go off and live like you didn't. You go off and you act like you didn't hear the word. You go off and the word has no place in your heart. Or, and I think this is the real connection to verse 19, quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think this is talking mostly, not, again, just of good life advice, but mostly of how you receive the word of God. Are there those who hear certain passages and they argue with it? You know these people who argue with the Bible? You've met those people, haven't you? These people say, well, I know it says that, but or, you know, they find some other passage that is more uh, amenable to what they think and they ignore something. So they find some of these hard sayings and passages of the Bible and they make sure that that never really takes root. And so they end up arguing with the Bible. They end up getting angry with the message. Now, they'll blame it on the preacher. Because the preacher said it wrong. He said it at the wrong time. He said it in the wrong way. He said it in the wrong spirit. Uh, he, the preacher just messed this thing up nine ways to Sunday. But the end of it is, because of that, I don't have to listen to it. Now, our preachers perfect? Well, it's a lesson on humility. What do you think I'm going to say? No, obviously. Do preachers get things wrong? Do they say things wrong? Do they bring up the wrong passage? Do they sometimes teach the wrong truth at the wrong time? Do they sometimes overemphasize one thing to the doctor? Yes, every human frailty is known in those who minister in the word. But the power is in the word. And that's why sometimes the preacher can get such a big reaction. I don't think I can get all that much of a reaction from y'all most of the time. I don't think I'm that good a communicator or that good a storyteller. I don't think I can connect to the, to the heart that way. But I got a word that will. I got a word that can. And so if there's any movement in it, it's not by the presentation of Horsley. It's by the verse of which I cite. And so people will end up not hearing the word. They'll close their ears, right? What was that quotation from Isaiah that's brought out over and over in the Gospel of Matthew? These people have closed their ears. They have shut their eyes. And they have become hard of heart. So we need humility just so we will listen. Pride says, I don't need to listen even to God's word. And we go try, try and do evangelism. And how often do we run into that? People whose pride say, well, I don't even need to listen to that. Pride also gets in the way of once they've heard of believing. What was it again these folks did? Uh, Luke 9, 18, 9. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were trusting in themselves. They thought they were pretty good. They thought they were all right. They didn't think they needed to believe on another so as to be saved. Jesus comes and teaches them so that they can believe on him. And what do they say? "Ah, No, thanks for good. We don't need that. We think about this truth, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one will boast. See, Christianity is a place where there should be little boasting. If there's any boasting, it should be only in the Lord. Read that in Jeremiah 9. If you're going to boast anything, boast in the fact you know me. Uh, read that in First Corinthians and the book of Romans. If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Uh, so the Lord has saved us. The Lord has done this for us. If we're, if we're okay with ourselves and in ourselves, why is there need for another? And when is there room for another? But trust and faith, these are the opposite of pride and self. And so pride thinks uh, too much of itself. And pride says, I don't need another. I'm fine by myself. And actually, if you've ever heard anybody express those words or something close to it, and we probably all have. Are those people ever anywhere near Fine. They never are. All right, then the uh, pride gets in the way of repenting. Like, again, they trust in themselves that they're righteous. They don't think they need to repent. In every 12-step program there is, what is step one? It's so well known, it's used as a matter of humor, right? Whenever somebody says something, oh, I need to do this or I need to do that, and somebody will say, yeah, the first step is, you know, admitting to have a problem. Well, yeah, that is actually the first step in every 12-step program, is acceptance and admission. And, and by that, then you can break the cycle of denial and the lies that trap people into all kinds of sinful and self-destructive behaviors. Well, it works that way with sin too. Now, I'm not saying that we're in a 12-step program for sin, although maybe some of us need that. But, uh, but in those programs, acceptance and admission so that a change can be made is absolutely paramount. In John 9, we find this. John 9, 39, Jesus said, for judgment, I've come into the world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see your sin remains. See, they didn't even recognize their condition so they could change it. They didn't recognize the need to change because they didn't recognize that there was any kind of problem. And so when it comes to repenting, humility is absolutely necessary. When it comes to confessing, the fact we're going to confess another as our Savior, that we're going to personalize this, say he is My Savior, yes, he's the Savior of the whole world. He died for the sins of all, but yes, personalize that. He died for me. Our confession isn't just historical truths, although it is historically true, right? Uh, Jesus was born. uh, He was born of a virgin. Uh, He fulfilled the scriptures. He was uh, tried by Pilate. Uh, He was uh, crucified by the Romans. He was risen on the third day. All of those things are historically accurate and historically true, But we don't just confess the historical truth of those things. We confess the connection of those things to us. That we confess another to be our savior because we cannot help ourselves. And in the same way also, humility is absolutely necessary for baptism. You know, Romans chapter 6 talks about baptism Uh, picturing and reenacting in a way the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He died on the cross. We died of sins. Uh, He was buried in the grave. We are buried and immersed in the water. He rose from the grave, and we rise to walk in newness of life. And we submit to that. You know, we stand stand in water, and if somebody else, another believer, uh, somebody who's here before us in this same thing, in the same great exercise and the same great belief. We have a believer put their hands on us and put us under the water, right? Now, you think about, we've all played that game as a kid where we try to dunk each other. And what happens when somebody doesn't want to get dunked? You know, enough manpower and, and, and enough willpower, you can eventually probably, unless they're the biggest guy there, you can eventually probably get them under, right? But we've never seen a struggle like that in the baptistry, have we? No, if we did, we'd, we'd need more overflow drains because there'd be lots of splashing and lots of things. No, we've never seen that in the baptistry. It'd be farce if we did. But why don't we see that? Because when the person's standing in the water, isn't that one of the most the perfect pictures of human humility you'll ever see? Because who's standing in the water with another person with their hands on them? Somebody who's fixing to say, please dump me in this man's name, right? That's what we see in baptism. And what if you have pride that stands in the way of that? I don't want to get in that water. Why should I? I mean, I, then they, you know, you come up out, especially we have baptistries like this, or you think about those old fashioned baptism services down by the river where everybody's gathered around on the bank to watch. You got this one guy in special clothes and we're all watching him and we're all watching them confess sin and then they're going to get dunked and then they're going to come up and they're, they're dripping wet from head to toe. And, if you're a person who says, I don't want to be involved in that kind of spectacle. I don't want to be the center of attention where everybody is thinking about how sinful I've been. What would you do? Well, you wouldn't do it. Everything about baptism is a picture and an act of submission, is it not? That we're submitting to somebody else. So humility and all of that. And then the faithful life that we live, the sanctified life we're to strive for in Christ Christ. As a result, and this prophecy of Habakkuk 2 gets quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. The just shall live by faith. You know that, right? The just shall live by faith. I, I think if Paul had a theme verse or a life verse, or if Paul had the, one of those needlepoint things on the wall, I think this would be it. The just shall live by faith. But what does that verse say additionally? Here, Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Isn't that exactly what Jesus taught there in that parable of the, uh, uh, the sinner who confessed? Isn't that what Jesus taught in that parable against those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, viewing others with contempt? If you're proud, your soul is not right within you. But if you're faithful, you can be righteous and live by that. So faithfulness is contrasted with pride and wrong. So pride says, I don't need to listen. Pride says, I haven't done anything wrong. Pride says, I don't need anybody else to take care of this for me. Pride says... I don't need a new start. Pride says I can direct my own way. And the only way to end all of that human nonsense is with humility before God. Now we will note as well, though, there is some limits on humility. It's not humility of and in itself. The humility by itself is not meritorious. Humility does not say, oh, I'm humble, now I earn salvation. Or, I'm humble, I, I get uh, I get this uh, automatically, or I get this as a right, or I get this as a due." Why is it that humility is so recommended and taught by the scriptures? Because God recommends that to us, saying that if we don't have it, he won't receive us, but because we're humble, do we automatically get reception? Well... No, not in that sense, because it's all still uh, through the work of Christ. It's all through uh, faith in Christ. Uh, You think about uh, people who are humble but not believers, and there are some, right? Don't we know some kind and humble people who are not believers in Christ? Well, they're humble and lost. Now, the normal condition is prideful and lost, but there are some out there, aren't they not, that are humble and lost. And the reason why humility means anything is because God says, these are the kind of people that I will receive in Christ, right? And so, you know, we're forgiven in Christ and reconciled in Christ and adopted in Christ and cleansed in Christ and we're sanctified in Christ. And so there's nothing in in its own sense about humility that makes it magical, except that God says, this is the way I want you to come to me through Christ. And so we think about the prodigal son. He humbled himself and he went back to his father. Did he deserve a fatted calf? Did he earn a celebration? No, but the father was gracious to give it to him. And so, the same way, if we humbly come to God through Jesus Christ, there is a promise of reception, is there not? But it's not just because. We're humble, or that humble is is the magic spell. It's because this is what God says I will accept in Christ Jesus. And so he asks us, please comport yourself to that. And when we do that, he graciously receives us and gives us all the things which he has promised. So this is where we'll close. The other place for that opening psalm is quoted in New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. There's instructions to a number of different types of folks in First Peter uh, 1 through 4. And then in verse 5, it says, and younger men, they're the last in the list, that's specified, younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And then it says this, and all of you. So having left the particular classes uh, to whom he was giving special instruction, Peter now gives an all of you instruction. Now, who's the all of you? this is one of the few places in the Bible I find, hey, that's talking about me directly (laughs) because I'm part of the all of you. And all of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And so this is uh, one of the great things we need to have. In our regular Christian walk, this is how we got faithfully into Christ. This is how we'll stay faithfully in Christ with humility because God blesses that, but he is opposed to the proud. The proud he will deal with. uh, The humble he'll deal with in a totally other way. So we think about as we close that old hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. And so that's from Rock of Ages, as we recognize. It expresses this attitude that we need to have a humility in coming and in staying and in prospering in the things of Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.